18. Uh, if you want some entertainment later, uh, go look up. Uh, Google every year gives out a little uh, a listing of um, the top searches by state on Google for the past year. See if I can find a couple of those for you. Um, hang on. I was going to tell you, I was going to share with you Alaska, and now I can't remember what it was, but um, let's see. All right. I just, I thought, I thought Alaska was interesting <laughs> compared to everyone else. All right, it's coming. So, like, um, a lot of states, especially southern states that were in the path of the eclipse, uh, top search was like eclipse glasses, right? It makes sense, eclipse glasses, except Alabama was eclipse glasses Walmart, right? <laughs> Which kind of makes sense, right? Um, Arkansas, I don't know what they're thinking there. They're, instead, of it was, instead of eclipse glasses, it was eye damage from solar eclipse. <laughs> Which I, I wonder, was that like before or after um, the fact? Um, I don't know what's happening in Delaware. Uh, Elf on the Shelf. Uh, top searches for the, the whole year of 2017. There's a lot of um, arm twisting going on in the houses of Delaware, apparently around Christmas. Um, Alaska was cryptocurrency, right? Bitcoin. I see Sean, my neighbor out there. You were probably responsible for half of those searches, right? <laughs> The other half was my son sitting over there, Stephen. Um, cryptocurrency. Uh, Illinois. Calories in a unicorn frappuccino. It was apparently the unicorn frappuccino was a big deal there. And it wasn't it like 1,200 or 1,300 calories or something like that? It was crazy. Um, the last one I'll share with you, um, Maine, the state of Maine. I don't know how to interpret, interpret this. Monkey selfie. Monkey selfie. And I remember there was that article around about monkeys taking selfies. But um, yeah, so 2017 has, has wrapped up in stellar fashion. Uh, blindness from uh, solar eclipses. And I think I left my notes back there, Russ. Can you help me out? They're probably sitting right there on top of that. Yep, that's the page right there. And if nothing else, if you go and you look through those lists, you'll see there, each category, there's not just a single uh, thing that they've put there for each state. They've listed uh, several. Thank you, Tyler. And they're, they're kind of all over the map, but you know they'll sort of, they'll remind you of some of the big stories of 2017. Um, Coke Cafe is on there. Um, if you don't know what that is, go look it up. You still won't know what it is uh, because no one knows what it means. But if nothing else, what it tells us that like every year before, 2017, our attentions and our pressures and the stories and the things that people found interesting and the things that people thought were funny, the things that people thought were important are just kind of all over the map. And I would bet that 2018 isn't going to be a lot different from that.
There will be peaks and rises. There will be things that we get very indignant about as a, a country, or there may be segments of the population who, who find a banner that they can race behind. Uh, there will be something stupid that gets tweeted out by someone who has a phone in their hand. Um, and everyone will gather around how dumb that is or how smart that is or whatever it will be. And in the midst of all of that, perhaps the thing that we realize the most about the world around us and then we experience it in the microcosm of our own lives is that the world in a lot of ways is just not okay. The world in a lot of ways is not healthy. There are a lot of things happening around the globe. There are things happening in our own country, even in our own city. I mean, we think about um, the, the crime. You know, there were 3,000 vehicles stolen in Anchorage last year. Crazy, right? We can look all around us and see that the world isn't really okay. And you might look at your own life and say that you're not really okay. And there are probably some ways that I could look at my own life, we could look at our family, and we'd say, you know, that's not as good as it could be. It's really not okay. And the Bible really has some messages for us about that, especially in some particular areas of our lives that we might deal with. And so in kind of kicking off this series today, I want to approach that idea of what do we do, or how do we translate, how do we process the idea that the world is not okay, or that our lives are not okay. And I want to share with you one uh, passage of scripture here at the very beginning that isn't particularly encouraging if you don't get it in its right light, but let's look at it. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. And there's been this big discussion. I mean, Romans, uh, Russ and I have talked about this. In fact, Russ has written a, a commentary of the book of Romans that's, that's uh, really got some great stuff in it and illuminating. The difficulty with the book of Romans, it's fairly long, is that it, you can pull out ideas like this, but you have to be careful because there's a lot of context that goes around them. Uh, it's one of the reasons Romans is so difficult. Like if we were going to do a study of Romans on like Sunday morning series, who knows how long we would be in that because it's so rich and it's so interconnected, it's difficult to do. It's one of those things that you really kind of need to sit down and read large chunks of it at one time and process it because the context is so important. So there's been already, we're just in chapter 3, there's been a, a pretty healthy discussion about uh, the Jews versus the Greeks and those who are in the, uh, the, the family of God, those who are considered part of the nation of Israel and those who are not, uh, those who are Jews, those who are non-Jews, um, don't have any belief in, in really even in Jehovah, much less in Jesus Christ. And about these ideas of, of faith and God's grace and doing good things and doing good works and how those all interconnect. And so he's, he's, he's built this case in this one part and then he, he arrives at this uh, and he does this, the writer does this several places throughout the book where he says, okay, we've, we've laid the foundation now, let's deal with a central idea. And here's the central idea that he deals with right, right here. He says, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So he's had this conversation already about how, you know, the Jews have benefited from this, and, and God has done this, and they're his people, and they're his children, but are we any better than anybody else? Do we have it any better than anybody else? And he says, no. And then he, he puts out this statement. As it is written, 
None is righteous. No, not one. Almost like he's having a conversation where he goes, look, no one's righteous. And somebody goes, uh, and he goes, Mm-mm, no, no, not even you. Whatever you were about to say, forget that. Because it's wrong. Nobody's righteous. Not even one. And so, in one way, that's kind of like, I don't know, it could be depressing, right? Like you think, well, I'm a good person. Okay, well, I'm sure you are. But there's a difference between being good and being righteous. And it could be... Um, sort of self-defeating, if it's not depressing, we might just say, well, I guess forget it then. If nobody's righteous, then I don't have to, I just behave however I want because everybody's in the same boat. And actually in Romans, he deals with that a little bit later about uh, if we understand that God's grace is given to us, does that mean we can just act however we want to? And I'll give you a preview. The answer to that question is no. It doesn't work that way. But if no one is righteous... That means that no one is okay. And if no one is okay, how can we have any hope? How can we trust in anything that God says? How can we, how can we have then a life or live a life that feels fulfilling and is satisfying and has purpose if we go, eh, we're all messed up? Well, the beauty of it is that in fact, because everybody's messed up, Everybody has the same opportunity to find righteousness in Christ. Everybody has the same uh, chance to discover what God can do in their lives that we can't do for ourselves. See, there's a righteousness offered to us that isn't our own because our righteousness doesn't work. Nobody's righteous. But God offers something to us in response to our willingness to trust him and to follow him and to be disciples of Jesus Christ. I want to take us to a different story um, to kind of lay this foundation. And uh, it's a story that, uh, that many of us have heard. And even if we haven't heard the story, we've heard the guy referred to. But it's the book of Job. Maybe one of the most difficult stories in the Bible uh, to kind of wrap our heads around. And, and some of that's because we, we have a tendency as a culture and even as a Christian culture to take some, um, some ideas from the book of Job and kind of get those wrong. One of those is... Um, the patience of Job. You've heard that before. Like, man, he's got the patience of Job. And I wonder if people who say that have ever actually read the book of Job. Because we get to a place where Job's patience definitely runs out in, what's, in response to what's happening in his life. But let's look at what the story says and how maybe that relates to our lives today and how it's going to relate to the next few weeks that we'll spend together in this series. And if uh, you want to go with me, if you've got a Bible or you've got it on your phone and you want to jump there with me, you can. Uh, just going to start in uh, Job 1.1. Now, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. This is an interesting turn of phrase here as the writer writes about Job because when you say things that um, blameless, that's almost never applied to another person in the Bible. It's applied to Jesus. It's applied to God. And there are others who are called righteous. But the writer here says, man, Job has really got it together. 
He is blameless before God. He is like firing on all cylinders. His thoughts are clean. His actions are good. The words that come out of his, out of his mouth are, are encouraging. Um, it goes on to say here in those next few verses, uh, Job was blessed. In fact, it says that because he was so, so righteous that, that he had just really enjoyed blessing in his life. He had a nice wife, ten kids, grandkids, sheep, uh, servants. All kind, and, and not just a little, but like a lot, like 7,000 sheep. That's a lot of sheep. He was, he was wealthy. Things were going well for him. And he was, he was so careful about the way he lived his life, it said that, that they would have feasts, and, and they're talking about some of the feasts that the Jews would, would celebrate throughout the years, would have these, these feasts. And then in the aftermath of the feasts, Job would go and he would make sacrifices on behalf of his family just in case they had sinned and he wanted God to forgive them. He, man, he was looking over every detail of his life. And then it goes on to say this, verse 6. It's not going to work for me. Come on. There it goes. Maybe. All right, I'll just read it. Oh, here it is. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now, some translations say the angels. The angels came. We're not sure exactly who that is, but we do see that Satan came along with them. And uh, he, God asked uh, Satan, he says, hey, what have, you been, uh, what have you been doing? Where have you come from? And Satan says, uh, I've been going to and fro on the earth and, and walking it up and down, you know, taking a look. And the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? That there's none other like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So God even looks looks at Job and says, man, he's a good guy. My, my, my servant Job, he's a good guy. Then Satan answered and said, does Job fear God for no reason? And this is kind of a, an interesting phrase because he's, what he's asking is, does Job really understand what it means to put all of his faith in God? I mean, because Satan knows he's been down there roaming the earth, right? He's seen Job. He says, look at this guy. He's got everything a man could want. Life is perfect. You know, he's out by the pool while, while everybody else is out tending the lawns and the sheep and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and he's eating the nice food and, and he's enjoying himself and, and he's smiling all the time. He's like, who, who doesn't feel good in that moment? Satan challenges God. He says, have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But if you stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, he will curse you to your face. 
Now, in the day when this was written, those reading this would have really understood this. And in fact, we, we wander into this kind of belief sometimes today where we go, if I act okay, God will bless me. And if I act improperly, God's going to get me. Right? And there is some principle to that in Scripture. You know, you reap what you sow, right? I mean, if you sow anger, you're probably going to get anger back. If you sow compassion, you're probably going to get compassion back. But this idea that because someone has uh, a good life or, or what to us looks like success, that somehow they're being blessed, we still wrestle with that today. And they definitely wrestled with it in the culture of the day. In fact, there was kind of this belief that there were, there were only two ways that, that your life could be sort of surveyed and understand your relationship to God. And that was if things were going well, you were doing all the right things. And God was blessing you. And if things weren't going well, it's because you were messing things up and God was punishing you. And those were really the only two options that people thought about. And that's why they would look at some, one another sometimes, and when someone was in trouble, they would say, oh, you must be getting it from God. <laughs> He's given it to you. You deserve it, because you did something. But Satan proposes something else here. He says, um, he says, is it really true that someone could just simply believe in who you are, no matter what their circumstances are? Because that's not what I'm seeing down on the earth. I'm seeing that people definitely gauge their relationship with you by how well things are going, how okay things are. And so he kind of challenges God to this test. And so God says, okay. Everything he's got, I'm going to let you mess with it. But you can't touch Job. Leave the man alone. Now right here is when we usually run into this, this, this idea and we run into this passage and we go, God be mean. But what we're going to be driving towards here is what eventually we find in the story of Job. Because we see this in worldly terms, because here's what happens. He loses all the sheep, he loses all the goats, he loses his house, he loses his family except his wife. Uh, everything is taken away from him. And he's left in ruin. That's what happens. And we find Job sitting there in the aftermath of all that, and he says, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. You've heard that before, right? The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but I will bless his name forever. I want you to think about your own life. And some of you, frankly, have had this experience. Everything gone. Everything taken. And we don't know why. See, here's, here's the thing. There's kind of two stories going on here, right? There's Job on the earth, He's down here, there's the story going on here, and then there's this story happening in heaven. And Job has no idea what's happening up here in heaven. He just sees what's happening in his life. And so he has no reason down here when things start to go wrong. He, he doesn't have any objective 
opinion or perspective to go, oh, well, this is, this is God allowing me to be tested. It's okay. He doesn't know that. He just, in fact, he lives in an environment where here in a little while, uh, his friends are going to come to him and sort of give him a little bit of a talking to, and his wife is going to give him a talking to that runs more along the way that we might tend to think about it. But think about your own life. If everything were taken away from you right now, would you and I be people who say, he gives and he takes away, but I will bless the Lord forever. Man, I don't know. You know, I could, I could stand here and say, I'd like to be that guy. But can I, can I say it for sure? I don't know. But I can say this, would I want to become the kind of person who, who when life is good, I give praise to God. And when life is hard, I give praise to God because I have become the kind of person who more than anything in all of my life wants God above all those other things. So Job blesses the Lord, and then, again, up in the heavens where Job can't see, Satan and, and God have another conversation, and, and uh, God says, see, told you, <laughs> he's awesome. And Satan says, yeah, that's fine. He, and there's actually this phrase in the Bible that says, but skin for skin, the devil says. He says, if you let me touch him, I bet he'll curse you. And God says, okay. You can mess with him, but you can't kill him. This really is uncomfortable territory for us. It is for me. But it speaks to what, it, what, are my, what are my perceptions about God and his sovereignty? What is my true belief about God's ability to keep me and to, to hold me in my best interest even when things are terrible, even when things are awful? Is my faith in God going to be determined by my temporary circumstances of life here on earth? Or do I truly trust in him as an eternal father who is truly looking out for my eternal best interests in spite of what might be happening in my temporary life? Because after all, the Bible tells us that this life that we live here, this, this flesh that we walk around, we're like, we're like grass that sprouts up in a day and then the sun comes out and withers it away. It's like that fast. We're, the blink. we're a blink of an eye. We're a wisp of smoke in this life. But that eternal part of us, that eternal part of our being, lives forever, has purpose forever. And if nothing else, we find in the story of Job that we, we should strive to not be so caught up in our earthly lives that we forget the importance of our eternal existence. Because while this life may hurt, and it does sometimes, 
Sometimes we will be the people who are living in the land of us. Nothing's going right. Everything's falling apart. We're in pain. We suffer. But are we going to be people who let our faith in God be defined by what is temporary, even though it's very real and it's very much not okay? Or are we going to look towards an eternity and trust him for that? Because that's ultimately the question that comes before Job. So God says, okay, you can mess with him, but you can't kill him. And so then we find Job in terrible circumstance. Um, uh, he's lost everything, right? And he's sitting in a, a pile of ashes. He's, he's throwing ash on his head. He's shaved his head. He's covered in boils, it says, from the crown of his head to the bottom of his feet. And he's taking a piece of pottery, and he's scraping the tops off of those boils on his arms so that they can weep. Oh, you ever had a boil? Anyone? Anyone? I, can I see? Was that Vicky Sargent? That it? Dead? This is a little embarrassing, but I'm willing to be vulnerable to you right at this moment. When I was a teenager, about 17, my sister had a boil, I think, somewhere on her leg. And uh, it was someplace like right where, like the pant, like she couldn't wear long pants, but the shorts like fell right there. And it was just, it was really uncomfortable. And she was really complaining about it a lot. Um, we're, uh, let me think, how many years are we apart? About 13 years apart. And uh, so um, I was young and immature and not very compassionate. And I would make fun of her about her boil and about how much pain she was in. She just had one, just one boil. And she seemed to be in so much pain. And I laughed at her and made fun of her. And I don't know if she cursed me or not, but I ended up with a boil on my bottom, right there. Just one. It was awful. It was terrible. I repented. I did. I told her, I said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I said that, that I made fun of you about your boil and it was so painful and you're being a big baby. Because uh, it was terrible. And here's Job, man. I can't, oh, I can't even think about it hardly from, from the crown of his head to the bottom of his feet. And he's just trying to get some relief from those. He's sitting in the ashes and uh, his wife says to him, why don't you just curse God and die? His friends come and, and sit down with him. And for a long time, they're just silent. Which is a nice image that we should take advantage of sometimes. When those that we love are really in the middle of it. Because we tend, especially like guys, I know, but we tend as people, we tend to give advice, give direction, say, you know, you should do this. Oh, you should try this. Oh, you should, you should go this way. There's a thing that uh, is still a tradition in the, uh, the Jewish community where when someone dies and there's uh, mourning, that they'll just go and they sit. It's called sitting in Shiva. Uh, in the South, they have this sometimes too, and sometimes it's called sitting up with the dead. And there's not supposed to be any talking. Someone is mourning, you know, they're dressed in black, they're, they're weeping, their loved one has died, and, they're, and you just go and you just be with them, and no one talks. And so his friends came and they did that with him and they sat there. His wife says, you should just curse God and die. 
And this is where we get to the patience of Job thing. Because this is what we find Job to do. When his wife says, you're talking like a foolish, uh, she says, you should, you should curse God and die. He says, you're talking like a foolish woman. Should we accept good from God and not accept trouble? Which sounds like a great principle, right? Look, God, he gives and he takes away, right? So should we accept good from God? But then and when trouble comes, we're like, ooh, God's bad. When it's, when it's good, hey, God's awesome. He's on our side. When it's bad, oh, God's our enemy, that kind of thing. He says, this doesn't make any sense. And when he said all these things, the Bible says that in all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. The first time, when he said, you know, uh, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, uh, blessed be the name of the Lord, the Bible says that he did not sin. Here it says he did not sin in what he said. But in his heart, Job had begun to struggle. His friends sat with him. They mourned with him. And after all this happens, he's scraping, he's in the ashes. His friends are kind of going, I don't know what to tell you. Chapter 3, it says, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And for the next 28 chapters, Job just The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. That doesn't sound like patience. Now, to be fair, it took a lot to get him there, but you and I are like that sometimes, right? We can endure a lot. We can put up with a lot. But then we get to the point where we're just like, this is not okay. I'm not okay. And in the paradigm that says that when we're doing everything right, God blesses us, and when we're doing everything wrong, God punishes us, when this happens, our perspective would be then as soon as Job opens his mouth and says, hey, this isn't fair. I don't like how this is going. I don't like what's happening in my life, God. You're like shooting at me, God. What's going on? Our paradigm and the paradigm that only has those two ideas says that God would then come in and strike you and punish you. Because who dares speak out to God? And sometimes this is still taught that way because uh, God comes back to him. So ultimately Job, Job says, if I only knew where to find God... If I could go to his house, I would tell him what for. And I would fill my mouth with arguments. We're often told when things are not okay that we just need to trust God. Just trust God. That's not a bad admonition, but sometimes it's difficult, isn't it? It can be difficult to trust when things are bad. Job basically says, I wish I could take God to court to argue my case. And then in chapter 38, Job has really spent himself. 
And then he gets his wish because God shows up. He doesn't get God's physical presence, but he gets God's voice. And in spite of what the real message of Job is, there still are places where you'll find it taught this way, that, okay, so all of this transpires that I've described for you. Job finally loses it. He's yelling at God. His friends are going, oh, my gosh. Job, what are you doing? You're crazy. God's going to get you. And then God comes back and he speaks to Job. And like we do with many other passages, because we're so ingrained in this idea that God somehow wants to punish us or that he's the big bad God or he's the big punishing God and that he's, he's always just seeing us with these wrathful eyes, as, as we look at the words that God speaks, so often it's communicated here from this book as if God is angry, like, oh, Job, you know, that whole movie-like thing, smoke and fire and But if that were God's intent, wouldn't he just like, Job, I've had enough. Kind of like Thomas in the New Testament, you know, doubting Thomas. Jesus has appeared to the other disciples. They've seen him with their eyes. They've, they've touched him with their hands. And Thomas hasn't. And he's like, Look, guys, I love this idea that Jesus is back from the dead. I, I would like nothing more than to know that Jesus is back from the dead. But I got to tell you, if I don't see him, if I don't touch him, I'm not buying in. And see, in the paradigm that says God just responds to us with wrath or with anger when we don't trust or when we're not okay, Jesus would go, well, forget that. If their word's not good enough for it, then I'm not doing anything for you. But that's not what he does. Thomas expresses these doubts, and Jesus shows up and goes, hey, guess what? I heard you. Come here. Hug me. Touch me. See me. And so when God begins to respond to Job's lament, he is not angry with Job. He understands Job. He knows what's happened because God let it happen. What kind of a jerk would God be to have allowed all of these things to happen to Job, and then when Job finally loses it and says, this is not okay, God would go, what's wrong with you? That would be a jerk God, and he's not. The Bible tells us over and over and over again that he loves us. And so when Job says, this is not okay, I don't understand, God comes back to him and begins to say things like, who is this? that obscures my plans with words without knowledge. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Who marked off its dimensions? Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the Morning stars sang together, and the angels shouted for joy. Well, he doesn't really answer Job's question of why is this happening. Instead, he begins to remind Job of who he is, the one that Job said he trusted, the one that Job said he would bless forever no matter what happened. He says, remember who I am? And 
what God is doing and what sometimes happens to us when things aren't going the way that we think they should be. Maybe they're not going the way that anyone thinks they should be. But sometimes instead of answering the question, why? God answers the question and says, me. He says to us, you can't understand everything. Even if I explained it to you, you still wouldn't understand it. But at the end of it all, is your trust in your circumstance or is your trust in me? There's no crime in asking why. There is no crime in saying, I'm not okay. There's no crime before God in saying, this isn't fair. But don't always expect then God to say, well, I'll make it fair because we know that's not true. I just had a friend uh, text me here not too long ago and say, uh, is it wrong for me to continue to get up every day and pray for my healing? It's been 25 years. Is it ever going to happen? I, I can't give a, a, an affirmative answer to that. When we get past this series, we're going to talk about the miracles of John. One of those is going to be Jesus at the pool of Bethsaida. And there's scores of people around who are all ill and all sick, and he heals one guy. And in human terms, in finite terms, we look at that and we go, that's not fair. And God is saying to us all along, don't look at what's fair, look at me. This life is finite. Your soul is infinite. Trust me. And are there days where that's a, a tough thing to do? You bet. You bet. And what's the best thing we can do for one another on the days when it's tough to, to follow through and say, okay, okay, God, I'm with you. Is for us as believers to just be with one another. To sit with one another to walk through with one another. Don't offer platitudes. Don't offer promises about God that you don't know if God's going to keep. Um, don't assume that God's going to do anything because you don't know the mind of God and he is ultimately sovereign and he is also ultimately good even when life isn't so much so. The underlying problem in all of this what was referenced in that very first passage of scripture. There is no one who is righteous, no one. We're all sinful, and the world around us is, is affected by everyone else's sinfulness as well. We live in a fallen place. And so sometimes things go off the rails, not because anybody did anything, but it's just because a sin has poisoned and perverted and broken the world that we live in. It's broken us. And things just don't work the way they're supposed to. Second Corinthians gives us this promise that for our sake means for our good, for our benefit. He made him to be sin 
who knew no sin. That's Jesus. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. See, no one is righteous on their own, but we have the opportunity. And God did it just because he loved us. For our sake, I'm doing this for your sake. I'm going I'm to punish Jesus with your sin so that you, you can have a soul that is freed from that and really is righteous with his righteousness. And yes, that can make for a more abundant life. And yes, that can help us in this life as we face troubles. But guys, it is no guarantee that life is going to be easy. It's no guarantee that life is going to be okay. There are going to be times when we're still going to look around and we're going to go, this is not okay. And the voice we should be listening for is the voice of God that says, sometimes you can't know why, but you can always know me. And that is for eternal importance beyond this life. Would you stand for closing prayer? Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause the light of his face to shine upon you. May he turn his countenance towards you and give you peace. Lord, be with us over these next several weeks as we talk about uh, some of these areas of our lives where so many of us encounter not being okay. Lord, help us to, to discover some truths from your word about how you can be with us in the midst of those, how you can help us to move through and past them. And Lord, when necessary, how you can help us to endure. Because, Lord, we want to recognize, we want to be people who, who acknowledge, who, who speak with our lips and live with our hearts, that even if we're not okay and the world is not okay, we understand that you, you are ultimately okay and good and merciful towards us. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, we'll just take a seat for just a moment. A couple of announcements. Um, I want to remind you, if you know folks with uh, kids, um, five-year-old uh, five through fifth and even sixth grade, I know we have some of our sixth graders, and we will also be trying to incorporate our little kids into this as well, kind of our three- and four-year-olds. Uh, but beginning uh, February 27th, that's a Sunday, Pastor Tyler will uh, take the first Sunday of meeting with our children's ministry, working towards Easter Sunday. We're going to do a a really fun live worship event here where all of our kids are going to be involved with us. And I'm going to try and get some of our uh, teenagers involved as well with our worship team and uh, just have a great time of, of music and celebration and get them involved in helping to lead worship that day. And it'll be a fun time. So for the next uh, two Sundays of this month, we'll have regular Kids World just like we did today. Um, the last Sunday of the month, they'll be in here with us. Then February, the first three Sundays, regular Kids World. And then the last Sunday of that month, we will begin... Uh, with the music stuff and teaching them the songs that we're going to do and figuring out how that's going to work. So uh, all of your kids, of course, welcome to be a part of that. That's going to be a, a blast. We had such a great time with uh, the Christmas uh, show that the children did. They were so uh, great, and we have a lot of musical talent in our children. And uh, so we want to kind of do some more with that, right, and get them 
get them going. But if you also have friends that you now have kids that would like to be part of that, make sure and get them here, uh, get them here now. Uh, this series is a great series, I think, to invite friends to be here for, um, because this speaks to where a lot of us are in our lives. So I hope that you'll invite folks to come and join you for church over the next few weeks, offer to take them to lunch, things like that afterwards, and build that relationship and uh, just continue to be uh, you awesome Christ community folks. I love you very much, and uh, it's going to be a good year, right? All right.